Hi, everyone. This is Red Hoffman. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Mary Lynn McPherson. Lynn is a pharmacist, a professor, the executive director of advanced postgraduate education in palliative care at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, as well as the program director of the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate in Palliative Care program at the University of Maryland. She is a prolific author and a well-known speaker. Her book, Demystifying Opioid Conversion Calculations, is a must-have for any palliative care or pain management physician. In 2018, she was named as a visionary in hospice and palliative medicine by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. So Lynn, as we're getting started, I have to say I'm so excited to talk to you because I've heard you speak many times. So this is a great joy for me. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you trained, and why you decided to become a pharmacist. Okay, it's, that's a tall order. Um, I was born in Annapolis, Maryland, where I lived all of my life until five years ago. And then my husband and I moved across the Bay Bridge to Kent Island, which is the eastern shore of Maryland. So as I'm looking out my window here, we are smack on the Chesapeake Bay, which is the world's largest estuary. So now you can all your listeners can go look up the word estuary. Uh, but it's beautiful here on the Bay. So um, why did I become a pharmacist? Well, I think it was a happy accident, actually. Unbelievably, my mother, even though I'm not actually quite that old, uh, was of the opinion that young ladies should become a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher, and I'm not real happy with the sight of blood. And uh, I thought, oh, God, I would be a terrible teacher. And so I said, well, maybe I'll, you know, be a secretary. So I was talked into at least getting a business degree instead of a something to do with secretarial. But as a consequence, I'm the fastest typist I know. So there is that. Um, and then I had a couple of different jobs and I actually landed in a job in the pharmacy department in a hospital. And I really enjoyed that very much. So I decided, you know, I think I have found what I want to do. And I did go to pharmacy school. So I was happy to do that. I worked at a hospital in Baltimore for four years. One of my rotations uh, while I was in my post-bac PharmD program was in hospice. And I, because I picked it thinking, oh, this would be a little bit easier than something like a critical care unit. Well, the preceptor very nearly killed me, but I did fall in love with it that summer. So I knew I always wanted hospice to be part of my future. So the job I accepted at Union Memorial in Baltimore was three days a week in the home care hospice department and two days a week in the pharmacy. Um, and then I stayed there about four years. And then I finally joined the faculty at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. And again, maintained as part of my practice consulting in hospice through the school and ambulatory care. Um, and then, you know, I've been at the school since 1990. So 30 years as of this past August. And one thing led to another. And so in addition to a business degree and a doctor of pharmacy degree, I became very, very interested in the science of education. So I pursued a master's degree in instructional design, which is the science of how do you design education well? And I followed that immediately with a master's degree in distance education and e-learning. So between working in hospice and palliative care for, at that time, 25 years, and the schooling that I had received, the time had come to, my stars all aligned, to be able to design that online master of science and graduate certificate program in palliative care, which has done amazingly well. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Can you tell me a little bit about that program? Who is it geared towards? It's geared toward everybody. So we have, I'm, I'm very pleased with the representation from all the disciplines. It's probably 20% physicians and 
30% nurses and probably 15, 20% pharmacists. We've got a good cohort of social workers and chaplains and administrators. And then what I call my other pool. So we've had a veterinarian graduate, a palliative care veterinarian graduated. We've had, we have death doulas. We have child life specialists. We have a dentist, a dental hygienist. So all sorts of disciplines uh, have, are embark on this, but a very representative of the hospice and palliative care team. We're very invested in interprofessional education. Um, so, you know, we all check our egos at the door. And I think that's pretty speaking of palliative care across the board that, you know, we're very collegial as a group and very used to the team environment. And uh, I am very proud of the fact that students say repeatedly, number one, it's a very practical program, but number two, they learn as much from each other or more than they do from the faculty. So there are no recorded talking heads in our program. The faculty is not the sage on the stage, they're the guide on the side. So they are guiding students and learners along this journey, not you know, the traditional yappity yap. So you know, I think well done online education is as good or in my humble opinion, better than most face-to-face -face education. It sounds like you were set up to succeed in this COVID era. <laughs> Well, it was a small step for us. Let me tell you, when else, everyone else was scrambling, I was like, well, just another day in the office for us. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit about how you see the role of the pharmacist as part of the interdisciplinary palliative care team? Sure. I Obviously, I think with pain and symptom management, medications play a big role in achieving the therapeutic goal for the patient. And I think the other half of our job as a pharmacist is deprescribing. I'm rapidly interested in deprescribing in serious illness, but using an evidence-based approach, not only for the science of which medications can we pare down on, but how do we do that? And probably even more importantly is how do we have those conversations with other practitioners in the community and patients and their families and informal caregivers? If you can't do the communication piece, you're swimming upstream. So I'm very interested in I'm very interested in aggressive pain and symptom management number one. So I think we need to bust our buttons to absolutely accomplish effective pain control and non-pain symptom management, but also looking at the whole medication regimen and looking at deprescribing. Another one of the things that I feel pretty strongly about is transdisciplinary care. So I am not happy unless everybody in my orbit goes home 10% pharmacist. And I pride myself on the things that I've learned from my social work colleagues and nurses and physicians, because I think we need to be cross-trained enough so that we can at least carry the ball and make it more seamless for the patient. These transitions in care need to be more seamless. Yeah, they're pretty awful, I'm realizing. I agree. I agree. I, I will say I was lucky enough when I was a surgical resident to do a month-long elective with a palliative care team that had a pharmacist. And it was it was so incredible how much I learned, but so much more than just pharmacy. She had so much to add from the medical perspective because she had learned so much from the team over the years. So it was so collaborative. It was great. That, that is wonderful. I wasn't going to ask you this, but when you were talking about deprescribing, I know one of the things that we see a lot in trauma is these older people who are on blood thinners and then come in with a head bleed. And I'm wondering, what's the language that you use when you're talking about communication around deprescribing? How do you talk about that deprescribing of blood thinners? With patients, for example, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, with patients or their families. Absolutely. Well, you know, one hard and fast rule we have in hospice is, generally speaking, unless it's a very small hospice, 
the admission nurse is not the nurse who will be the eventually be the case manager. So the admission nurse's job is to gather all the information, do all the paperwork, and that admission visit can be like three or four hours long. It's, it's quite an experience. But to do very effective medication reconciliation on that visit, and I always say your job is to like crack the door open a little bit and to say, I'm going to get your total medication regimen to make sure I very accurately recorded everything. And then when your nurse case manager gets in here tomorrow or the next day, whatever it is, uh, that nurse will work with your physician or pr practitioner, whoever it is, and our physician to make sure you're on the best medication regimen possible. Um, we may add some medications. We may have a conversation about maybe letting some of the medications go. But so it's not to really like, you know, ruffle too many feathers, but just to open the door to, to make sure that everyone knows that the time has come to really focus in on what's important. Sometimes we have patients where we are lucky if they had three good swallows in them a day. So it's important to convey, look, if you can swallow three times during the day, these are the three medications you really want to get in. Right. So obviously, I want to take advantage of your expertise and ask you some treatment related questions that surgeons are often faced with. Sure. So I thought we'd start with nausea. I think as surgeons, I do emergency general surgery, and I'm often dealing with nausea secondary to either a small bowel obstruction or an ileus. Mm -hmm. And so after placing an NG tube and making the patient NPO and starting on IV fluids, can you walk me through what medications we should consider in a stepwise fashion? I think nausea is as complicated as pain and often more complicated. So regardless of what symptom you're talking about, whether it's nausea or pain or dyspnea or depression or whatever it may be, I am a big, big advocate of doing a multidimensional assessment. So what brings it on or makes it worse? What makes it better from a non-drug perspective? What medications have you tried? How well did they work? Did you have any side effects? the quality, the region, radiation, if it's appropriate, the severity, the temporal aspects, and how does that pain or symptom affect the patient? So getting a full assessment of that. So for example, with nausea, it depends on the presentation. We've all had like nausea in my stomach. I feel like I want to throw up versus I'm kind of nauseated, dizzy in my head. Then there are people who say, if I turn my head quickly, or if I stand up quickly, the whole room spins and I feel like I want to throw up. Uh, certainly surgery, you know, post-radiation, opioid-induced nausea is another whole thing. So it really, it all boils down to which are the neurotransmitters at play here. The big players are going to be uh, dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, and histamine. So doing that very careful assessment leads you toward which drug would be the best antiemetic. So for example, you talk about a small bowel obstruction. Let's say it's an impending or a partial bowel obstruction. In that case, we probably would use pretty high dose dexamethasone and pretty high dose haloperidol because haloperidol is a very strong dopamine antagonist. So when you compare Haldol with compazine, which is prochlorperazine, Haldol is four times more potent as a dopamine receptor antagonist than prochlorperazine. I mean, the reason compazine's on the market is comp the compazine people said, well, our drug doesn't work very well for schizophrenia. We better take the nausea ball and run with it, men. So they did. But then when Haldol came down the pike several years later, the manufacturer said our drug rocks at schizophrenia. Let's go with that. We don't need to fool with the, the nausea thing. But clearly, Haloperidol is superior. So if it's opioid-induced, for example, that's a good option. And there was some very nice literature just published this year looking at 
someone with uh, cancer, an advanced patient, advanced case of, of cancer, and really nothing you can pin down to say this is the cause of the nausea. And they, they instituted olanzapine, five milligrams once a day at bedtime. And it was effective in like 90% of the patients. So I do think a very clear understanding of the neurotransmitters in the case of an impending or partial valve obstruction, a steroid can help shrink things a smidge. I mean, it's not going to completely reverse things by any means, but shrink it a little bit. And then the haloperidol would help quite a bit. Uh, certainly, I think we overuse the 5-HT3 antagonist. So you have to look for those situations where serotonin is a player. So certainly post-op, post-radiation and post-chemo, serotonin is a big player, probably way secondarily in the case of opioid-induced. And when you're looking at opioid-induced nausea, obviously the elephant in the room is constipation. That mm -hmm. way to treat that is to give them an effective bowel regimen. So one question, when you're talking about a the dosing of dexamethasone or the dosing of Haldol for these patients, what do you recommend starting with? If it's appropriate for the patient and there are no contraindications or precautions, sometimes we'll do dexamethasone like four milligrams, even four times a day. Now, of course, that can have side effects such as insomnia and often cause delirium. So you have to be careful with the dosing. Haloperidol often, again, three, four milligrams every six hours around the clock. So we generally don't use very high doses of haloperidol. I mean, it's another whole conversation about treating delirium. Uh, so we try actually not to use medications if we can help it in that situation. But generally speaking, we do use much lower doses of haloperidol. But in the case of a partial bowel obstruction, you know, short of having to go to octreotide or something like that, we try to control it with less invasive measures. So why do you think then anytime I see someone who has an ileus or a partial small bowel obstruction on all of these services, everyone's on Zofran. And when that fails, it's Phenergan. Is that just because we are just not trained correctly? I believe so. Phenergan is an interesting drug. It's, it's mostly an antihistamine, but it's, it's a very dirty drug. It hits multiple types of receptors. And frankly, the way it treats nausea is it knocks you out. So I've always accused my sister, who's also a pharmacist of that. I said, you like Phenergan because it knocks you out. You're not awake to whine about the nausea. And she said, you bet your boots. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. So having had the flu, I did appreciate uh, the Phenergan that she lent me. I happened to be out of town and she said, I happen to have one with me. Uh, but it's again, it's let's throw enough against the wall and see what sticks kind of drug. Right. Where is there any role for promotility agents like erythromycin or Reglan? I th certainly, I think a um, metoclopramide is a good drug if indeed we're talking about a gastroparesis type of issue. So that's why when you do that careful symptom analysis, asking the patient the temporal relationship of the nausea with respect to food. So if someone says, I start to eat, I take a couple, three, five bites, I get full very quickly and I get really nauseated. That sounds like the stomach is not emptying and maybe a propulsive agent would be helpful. If on the other hand, they say, oh gosh, I'm so nauseated, but eating seems to help. Then I wonder, do they have peptic ulcer disease? So I do think you have to have your complete differential list and do that very careful symptom analysis to try and narrow down what's going on. I mean, we try not to do many diagnostic studies when someone is clearly on hospice or very close to hospice admission. So we really have to put our detective hat on. Right. And I think that's something that's just so lost in medicine in general is taking that time to do like a full HPI. And so I feel like we miss a lot of the nuance that's mm -hmm. going on with these patients. I agree. Yeah. So you mentioned constipation, and that was going to be my next question. So can you talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about constipation in our minds and a stepwise approach for that? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, there are many reasons why someone with an advanced illness would be constipated. Immobility, their diet has changed. Maybe they're a little bit on the dehydrated side. There are lots of different reasons. Cancer itself causes constipation. Drugs like ondansetron are going to cause constipation. Certainly opioid-induced constipation is probably the leading cause. And I think it's irresponsible of a prescriber to write a, a prescription for an opioid and not have a conversation about the bowels. It's a rare patient who does not get constipated from an opioid. This happens within minutes. It's affecting the immune receptor in the periphery, of course. So uh, it's important that we address this. So I think another important thing is asking the patient what's normal for you. We all think, oh, once a day is normal, but there's a pretty high degree of variability. I've had patients tell me normal is five times a day. And um, some people will say, yeah, I go once a week. If I go twice, good golly, I've got diarrhea. So, I, But I do think establishing what's normal for the patient and certainly recognizes that constipation is not just a frequency issue, but a straining issue as well. Another big thing to recognize is that DocuSate has absolutely been voted off the island. There have been multiple studies looking at, for example, DocuSate with a propulsive agent, a stimulant laxative like Senna versus Senna alone, and Senna alone was much more effective. So I've been stalking gastroenterologists asking why, why, why is this? And the issue is that DocuSate just seems to make everything kind of a hot mess. And it, we're better off just using a stimulant laxative. So in most hospice patients where they're experiencing opioid-induced constipation, our go-to drugs are going to be Senna, which is a stimulant laxative, or polyethylene glycol. The issue with polyethylene glycol is you put a capsule in, it's supposed to be eight ounces of fluid. You probably can get by with as little as four ounces of fluid, but a lot of patients can't choke down four ounces of something. You can put it in water, tea, coffee, whatever you'd like. I did read an interesting abstract, and it was on the Jerry Powell podcast, actually, about a nurse who noticed that a patient was getting um, apple juice with thicket, and when the nurse added the Miralax to it, it actually reverted back to the consistency of water. So you do have to be careful if you're dealing with a thickened liquid. Interesting. But you put it in everything and just be careful also if the patient is pretty much on the dehydrated side, they may not get the osmotic effect of drawing fluid into the bowel, which would render the polyethylene glycol a little less effective. But with a Senna, you know, we start at one or two tablets a day. You can rock it up to eight tablets a day. Uh, like I said, I like the polyethylene glycol. I do also, anytime we're dealing with pain or symptom management, I look for opportunities for a twofer. So if someone has cirrhosis and they have hepatic encephalopathy and they're constipated, lactulose is a win-win. So looking for those opportunities where you can use one drug to treat two symptoms. And then what's the role for, oh, I'm going to forget the name, Lynn. For, I bet you're going to say. Yeah. T- <laughs> tell me what I'm asking. <laughs> You're asking about the PAMORIS, peripherally active mu opioid receptor antagonist. So for Thank example, you. methanaltrexone or Relistor was the first on the market. If you look at the data when they were their first clinical trials where they gave it IV, this is amazing. Talk about pharmacologically targeted. The people had laxation in one minute. Wow, that's not even enough time to turn on your Kindle. That's amazing. <laughs> we don't give it IV. Now we give it sub-Q and we do see that probably... About 35% of people have laxation within four hours of a sub-Q injection and within 24 hours, probably 83, 85%. There's also an oral formulation 
It's 450 milligrams once a day, very expensive, very expensive. Uh, and they don't look at laxation within, within a certain number of hours. They look at the number of spontaneous bowel movements that increase over the week. Um, but the way they work, like methyl naltrexone, for example, that methyl group makes that a quaternary ammonium. So it does not cross the blood brain barriers. That's why it stays in the periphery and reverses the effect of the opioid induced constipation. We have naloxagol, which is a pegylated um, molecule. So that long pegylated tail keeps it from crossing the blood brain barrier. And then we have a third naldemidine, uh, Symproic, uh, which also works in the same fashion. So uh, we have three on the market. And I would say they're not first line probably because of the expense. Uh, but if we do get into a bind, that's certainly a reasonable thing to reach for. We do have two other drugs that are fairly new. We have linoclotide um, and lubiprostone, which also are often used for opioid-induced constipation. But again, they're branded and they're pretty expensive. So again, not first line. When you're using these drugs, is the idea to schedule them or just to use them once, see if they work, and then continue your regular bowel regimen? Well, the pharmaceutical manufacturer would love for us to adopt these as the standing regimen, but I think due to the cost, most people would use them as rescue therapy and try to adjust your, your baseline valve regimen. So we certainly have many options for treating and preventing constipation. But I think, you know, if you just remember it right out of the gate and try to prevent it with very close attention to detail, that's your best strategy. Uh, rare, rarely will we use a Pemora uh, regularly as our valve regimen. Okay. And then you also mentioned up top talking about a little bit about delirium. So can you talk, that's one of my pet peeves, even just in my hospitalized patients is seeing how quickly delirium sets in and how little I feel like our teams in general, maybe because they're just overwork really do to prevent it. So, you know, one thing I'm really big on is rounding in the morning and opening the shades and it's morning and we're going to get up and it's daytime and then kind of rounding in the afternoon and trying to slowly settle things down. Um, Unfortunately, I don't see that always happen. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the pharmacological treatment or non-treatment of delirium. Sure. It is a sad state of events. It's very frightening for patients. There's been studies asking patients, do you remember what happened where you were quite not in your right mind there? And many patients, most patients do remember, and they rate the distress associated with that very highly, as well as family members rate this whole delirious episode as very distressing. So it's frightening and it's distressing. So it's certainly if we can prevent it, that's wonderful if we can. But we do know that about 85% of people before they die will experience delirium. So you're right. I think even though I'm a pharmacist, the the main treatment is non-pharmacologic. So trying to have familiar surroundings, trying to reorient people, a compassionate presence. I think often we will see in hospice a reversal of the sleep-wake cycle is one of the early signs. So the patient wants to be up all night and sleep all day and the family's trying to do the opposite. So um, we, we do try to you know stimulate the patient more during the day, keep them awake so they can sleep more at night. Uh, but sometimes we can't help it. Now, it's, it's tough. We're certainly the antipsychotics of the drugs that we habitually turn to, but they've really gotten a bad rap as you know, the, what we worry about is delirium in a patient with dementia where you use an antipsychotic drug increases the risk of sudden death. Now, we do use much lower doses, for example, in home hospice than often you'll see like in an ICU where I've seen, you know, people get slammed with like 10 milligrams of Haldol. Well, we, 
we start off with like a half a milligram of halbo, which is like a little more drug than licking the tablet. So we do try to use non-pharmacologic to our very, very best advantage as much as we can. But, and not all delirious patients are unhappy about this. Sometimes, I mean, every week in team meeting, I'll hear a hospice nurse say, the patient is pleasantly confused. Well, you know, we do our best non-pharmacologically, but if it's not frightening them and they're not at risk of harm themselves or someone else, maybe we can just watch and see how the patient does. But if in the case where the patient is trying to harm themselves, they're ripping IV lines, they want to go elope from the facility and go walk on the highway. We had a patient just a week ago, a young woman with brain meds, and she was quite delirious. She would fish her stool out and fling it at the nurses when they came around the corner. So obviously this is not something that anybody wants to see happen. So uh, we did have to medicate her. So having said that, with all the issues with the antipsychotic drugs, whether it's the first generation like the haloperidol or promazine group, or the second generation like quetiapine and enlanzapine, for example, um, I think increasingly people are turning to valproic acid, which is a mood stabilizer. And we've seen some very good effects with that. And actually, in that lady who did have the brain meds, we did use valproic acid at first, even perennially for 48 hours until she calmed down. And then we were able to convert her to oral therapy. So bottom line is try to look for anything reversible, number one. So if the patient's on an anticholinergic, famous for causing delirium, really have to be careful. Their steroids can cause delirium. So anything that's drug-induced or any other reversible cause like you, they have a urinary tract infection, certainly that's the first preemptive strategy. Next is using your non-pharmacologic strategies absolutely as much as you can. And your last strategy is going to be drug therapy. And I would give more serious consideration of valproic acid, maybe carbamazepine. What kind of dosing on the valproic acid? Uh, an older person, I'd start low, at like 125 twice a day. And you can go up to 500 twice a day, maybe even three times a day if you need to. Okay. And then lastly, I wanted to talk a little bit about malignant bowel obstruction, particularly, is there a role for steroids and then the data around octreotide use? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with that. I think if you have a complete obstruction, I'm not sure how much a steroid is going to do for you. And probably the thing we do go to is octreotide. And I have seen some pretty impressive success with this, but I believe there's some data out of Australia looking at IV H2 blockers actually giving some effect too. So I think we actually need to do a little more research in this area as well. Okay. So I know you've written extensively about pain management, particularly about opioids. I'm wondering, did your thoughts about opioids change in the last couple of years as the number of opioid overdoses increased? Well, it's interesting. I had used, I had a primary care practice for 28 years and I eventually ended up taking care of all the pain patients in the primary care practice. And uh, this was in downtown Baltimore, of course. The thing that really kind of turned me off of this practice was the physicians would sign any prescription I would put in front of them. It could have been MS cotton, a million Q12, and they would happily sign it. But the minute I would say, can I discuss this patient with you? They were like, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. If you're not comfortable with what you're doing, send them somewhere else. Well, that was fairly disconcerting. And I must say that we did have a fair number of patients who, um, you know, I would question their intentions and what's going on, or maybe their urine didn't turn out exactly as we had hoped. But it really got to be too much because I feel like felt like I was kind of alone in this. So 
I did make the decision to end that practice after 28 years. It was it was not just pain. It was diabetes and so forth. And my hospice and palliative care really picked up quite a bit. And University of Maryland does have a very fine pain specialty service. So I was very comfortable with them taking over that. But how has this all impacted hospice and palliative care? Well, you know, we used to be so proud of living in our little cocoon, but boy, that ship has sailed. So I do think it's important for Hospice and palliative care providers should use the same risk mitigation strategies that the rest of the world uses. So I do think, you know, using common sense, we do know that 25% of Americans at some point in their life will have problems with some kind of a substance, whether it's, I mean, I, I am deep in love with carbohydrates. So I don't know, maybe we can throw that in the bucket too. But <laughs> I do think we need to be mindful of this. I think it's not inappropriate for every hospice to check the prescription drug monitoring plan for every patient that's admitted. I know that we routinely have patients where they have a pain crisis at home. We bring them into our hospice inpatient unit and they go into withdrawal. Well, it wasn't my math. Thank you very much. It was the fact that the patient was scoring heroin and we didn't even know about it. And then they went into withdrawal when they no longer had access to their heroin. Very sad situations where it's not the patient who's abusing or diverting. It could be a family member. So sometimes we're in very tough situations. We had one lady fairly young, three little kids at home. She was dying and her husband had a history of substance abuse. So when she had a pain crisis, we brought her into the unit for a few days, got her tuned up, uh, sent her back home. And meanwhile, he had taken the entire bottle of methadone and consumed it. So we had nothing left in the home. So what do we do? Do we put her in a long-term care facility? She didn't want to leave home. She wanted to be with her children. He wouldn't leave. So it's kind of a red hot mess. So you have to have a plan. Every hospice agency must have a plan for dealing with suspected drug abuse and diversion. And clearly you're going to have a family meeting, the nurse case manager, the social worker should be there and say, look, we have found this problem. This is not good. We can't continue this. We have to confront this. And this is not a negotiation. It's a, here's what we're going to do. So we're going to hopefully, now that we have discussed the situation, everybody will be marching to the same tune and there will be no further need for intervention. You know, the nurses will do pill counts and so forth. Uh, and then it gets more draconian as time goes on. As people, you know, make choices, there are consequences. So if the husband's continuing to take the medications, we have to make the decision. Do we leave you in the home and do we continue hospice, but we don't use controlled substances? Or are you willing to go to a facility? Maybe if we switch to methadone or transdermal fentanyl. So we look at all of those options. I will say the biggest takeaway for me personally as a practitioner is, um, well, I, I do think that CDC guidelines, while certainly well-intended, have had unintended consequences. And the CDC themselves even put out, you know, that mea culpa letter about a year, year and a half ago saying, look, dude, this was not written on a tablet, come down from a mountain. These are guidelines. Right. You don't just put a sign in the window and say, we're an opioid free practice. You can't do that. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have a lot of legitimate pain patients who really do need opioid therapy and certainly in end of life care. But one thing that, and, and I'm not a big fan of these state limits because Number one, people don't know how to do these calculations. And do I include the PRNs or not include the PRNs? It's kind of a red hot mess. But it has raised for me my personal opinion that you should have your own personal line in the sand. When a patient reaches X milligrams of oral morphine equivalent, that you take a big old step back and say, like cash cab, maybe I need to phone a friend. Maybe I need to do a street shout out here. Am I doing everything I can do? Have I maximized my adjuvant analgesic. So for example, when somebody gets up to 100 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent per day, I think you need to take a big step back and say, hmm, what's cooking here? And people often forget to question, is this really opioid responsive pain? Not all pain 
Uh, it's not one size fits all. So what's important for practitioners to remember is that bone pain, which is, I think is probably one of the most painful parts of cancer, um, is not always responsive to opioid therapy. And the same is true of neuropathic pain and vascular pain. So you have to ask yourself, why is this opioid regimen not working? Is it tolerance? And if it is tolerance, but that you were getting a good response, then perhaps increasing the dose of the opioid is appropriate. Is it perhaps disease progression? Well, again, if they were responding to the opioid, maybe a higher dose of the opioid is appropriate. Or perhaps it's not 100% opioid responsive pain, and I need to explore, have I picked the best drug? If it's metastatic bone pain, how about adding a steroid or a non-steroidal? Um, looking at if it's neuropathic pain, how about a co-analgesic? And then there's the whole conversation about gabapentinoids and opioids now. Good grief with the black box warnings there. But I do think you should have your own personal line in the sand where if things are not, you're not meeting your therapeutic goal, questioning what the heck's going on. And it sounded like your line in the sand was about 100 oral morphine equivalents. That's certainly one. Yes, I think that's a pretty hefty dose. And I would say that if someone's going to respond to morphine or opioid therapy, it should be by that point or something's cooking. Okay, now I'm going to ask you just some specific questions that are always rolling around in my mind. What is the max dose of Tylenol? Is it three milligrams or four milligrams a day? It is four grams a day, according to the FDA. My personal opinion on why the manufacturer Tylenol brand lowered it voluntarily to three grams a day is because years ago, the FDA had an advisory committee who considered all things acetaminophen. And one of their recommendations, which was not acted on, was to make the 500 milligram acetaminophen tablet capsule, caplet, whatever, a prescription drug and to only leave the 325 or less on the over-the-counter market. Well, everybody knows that everybody buys the 500 milligrams, so holy moly, the cash cow is going to die if we make that sucker prescription. So I personally think that the manufacturer said, you know what, let's just lower the total daily dose to three grams a day, because everybody knows, like ibuprofen over-the-counter, the maximum daily dose is 1,200 milligrams. But the prescription maximum daily dose of ibuprofen is 3,600 milligrams a day. So every sweet young thing out there with menstrual cramps, what do they do? They go to the pharmacy, they buy over-the-counter ibuprofen, and they take four of those 200 milligram puppies, because they know there's a prescription 800 milligram dose. So personally, I think that's why the manufacturers voluntarily lowered the OTC maximum daily dose of acetaminophen to three grams, but truly the answer is four. What about um, the max dose for someone who has cirrhosis? Oh, that's a tough one. I probably would stay away from acetaminophen. If someone had cirrhosis or someone was drinking alcohol, I think the risk is pretty high. I probably would not use it. Okay. So one of the drugs I really like in surgical patients in general is Toradol. Can you talk a little bit about what, what are your thoughts around Toradol? I think it's a good drug. I think in some types of pain situations, you can see as good or better response as you would with opioid therapy, but it's pretty gastrotoxic. So I probably would limit the length of therapy. Uh, I think when, you know, if you take out the, the abuse question, when you compare the non with the opioids, I actually think the non are more toxic than the opioids. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have expected you to say that. No, I think that, you know, a lot of risk factors, not only GI, but cardiac. So I think we have to be careful with that. Okay. What are your thoughts on gabapentin or Lyrica? Well, that's an interesting question. I think 
you know, the gabapentin is probably the number one neuropathic pain drug in the world, but you have to go so slowly in titrating it. I mean, in an older adult, I would start off at 100 milligrams at bedtime, and then a couple, three days later, go to 100 BID, and a couple days later, 100 TID, and then keep your TID structure, and then go 112, 212. You can see where it can literally take months to get to your target dose. Gabapentin is interesting that as you increase the dose, you're reducing the bioavailability. So that's kind of a pain in the neck, except for the more expensive formulations. Uh, Pre-Gablin, you can push much more quickly and get to your target dose within about a week, despite having the exact same side effects. So you see the, the ataxia, the somnolence, the dizziness, the goofy feeling, double vision, uh, really prevalent. Probably 50% or more of patients experience those. can be fairly off-putting. Often when I talk to a patient, what has your doctor tried before? How about Neurontin? Oh, no, we did that. And I had quadruple vision. We're not going there again. So people push the dose too quickly, and it's really very off-putting for patients. But, you know, it is an effect. They're both effective drugs, the gabapentinoids. But now what we have to worry about is the, the very dire warnings from the FDA showing that the gabapentinoids reduce minute volume, and they can cause respiratory depression and death, as a matter of fact. And it's a very clear dose response curve. At low dose, the risk is lower, at middle, and then high, it grows quite a bit. And then when you couple one of those drugs with an opioid, uh, you really ratchet up the risk. So we have to be careful. I mean, we're in a tough spot. You know, the CDC, everybody's saying, try not to use opioids if you can help it, use your adjuvants. And then we hear this about the adjuvants, benzos and opioids, certainly that's not a good look either. So I don't know. This is not a good time to be a pain patient, is it? No, I feel for these patients so much. I know as a palliative care fellow in my clinic, the angst that these patients had just around getting their meds. I mean, this is on top of their very real pain was just, I mean, it was awful. It is awful. It's truly awful. I encourage chronic pain patients to not only have one provider, but also to have one pharmacist. So you get to know that pharmacist and you have a, that trusting relationship. I mean, community pharmacists antenna go up when somebody pops up who lives 60 miles away. It's a Friday night. They're paying cash. They don't know the prescriber. Those are all red flags. So you really want to have a relationship with one prescriber and one pharmacist so that you really can have your support team there with you. I've heard patients have explain how they will spend considerable time thinking through what should I wear to the doctor's office or to the pharmacy? Should I wear my lawyer power suit to look legit? Or should I wear my sweats and look pathetic so they'll take pity on me and give me the medications that I need? It, it, it's astounding what people- It's wrote. heartbreaking. It, absolutely, absolutely. One other random pain question. Can you talk about for transdermal medications, um, the idea of how much sub-Q fat you need to actually be absorbing these medications? Are there some patients that we need to be avoiding that delivery system in? Uh, you know, and I think what's important is for people to distinguish who a patient who is slim versus someone who is cachectic. So when we have a hospice patient and, and, you know, there's no hard line in the sand like, oh, my gosh, below a BMI of 20, you run like the devil or whatever. But I do think you have to consider, and it's not just finding, quote, a little fat pad to stick the patch to. It's the fact that, you know, the fentanyl gets absorbed and fentanyl is a very fat soluble drug. So I think it's got no place to hang. Plus, when you look at cancer, um, fentanyl is highly bound to albumin. And when you have cancer, 
your albumin tends to go into the extravascular space and if fentanyl is bound to it, it's going to go hang out in the extravascular space and not be in the intravascular space and cross the blood brain barrier where you need it to be to bind to the mu receptor. So I personally am not a big fan of transdermal fentanyl. I think there are so many variables that affect the absorption and the potential use of it. Um, certainly there are good candidates, but I think a lot of patients are not good candidates. And the thing that keeps me up nights is when a prescriber will keep hiking the dose of transdermal fentanyl thinking, well, let's just bump it up. Maybe we'll get a better effect. And then after a couple, three bumps up, finally saying, ah, shoot, this is not working. Let's convert off. And they give the patient full credit for the transdermal fentanyl patch when they convert off, when in fact, the patient maybe wasn't absorbing it, certainly wasn't retaining it. That is going to be an overdose situation. Right. Oh my goodness. And lastly, can you just talk a little bit about using buprenorphine for pain? Because I think that's something that we don't learn a lot about in medical school, or, and I certainly didn't learn anything about it in surgical residency, but I do see patients coming in on that drug. Yeah, I think we're kind of behind the curve in using buprenorphine as an analgesic. I know that pharmacists are not at all used to prescribers writing for Suboxone or Subutex for pain. They're always looking for that X waiver, thinking it's for a substance abuse history. But buprenorphine actually is a pretty awesome opioid. It's a very clean opioid. Uh, the, the thinking is it doesn't, it's not as likely to cause respiratory depression. The thing that people don't understand about buprenorphine is it has a higher affinity for the mu receptor than traditional opioids such as morphine, for example. And then people think, well, if I use Butrans, for example, which is trans, transdermal buprenorphine, what do I do for breakthrough? Well, you still use morphine or oxycodone or hydromorphone. You just may need a little bit higher dose to overcome the tremendous affinity between the buprenorphine and the mu receptor. But to your point about people who come into the hospital for an unrelated, uh, a condition unrelated to their substance abuse um, issue, what do you do with a buprenorphine? How do you treat acute pain in somebody who's on methadone or buprenorphine maintenance? Well, you have a couple choices. You can keep them on their methadone or buprenorphine. So any prescriber can keep that going in the hospital if they're not in the hospital because of the substance abuse history. Uh, and you just dose around it with another opioid. You may need a little bit of a higher dose. I think it's a little trickier to use the methadone or the buprenorphine to treat the substance abuse recovery and the current pain situation, I probably would not do that. Or you can stop their methadone or buprenorphine and treat their pain and then reestablish them once they're being discharged, which is a little tricky as well. So I think uh, getting your pharmacist involved is a great idea because they have a good understanding of these medications. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, it's an ongoing battle in my hospital. When I try to continue someone, say, Suboxone, I get a box that pops up that said, you're unable to do this because you don't have an X waiver. And I know that, yes, they're in their hospital for an acute surgical issue. I want to continue mm -hmm. their medication-assisted treatment for their opioid use disorder. And it's and so I know to call the pharmacist, but it's unfortunate as a system that it's like, I feel like these patients are at a significant disadvantage. Right. And then I do feel like I set them up for failure if we're kind of taking them off of it and then not restarting them in the hospital and then sending them out into the community with an opioid prescription. Yeah. Well, stay in close contact with their either their methadone clinic or the prescriber who is writing for the Suboxone. That's important is to, so you can smooth that transition and care back into the community. I know that often in hospitals, we will inherit a patient. If they're on buprenorphine, uh, I would say 99 times out of 100, we're going to stop it and then go on our merry way and treating the pain. But if someone comes to us on methadone maintenance, 
And sometimes we see these crazy doses like 90 milligrams a day. What do we do with that? Now they're too weak to go to their methadone clinic. And our doctor is not a methadone provider. So what we'll do is we'll take that 90 a day and break it into 30 milligrams Q8 for chronic pain. And then we right. titrate from there and continue to increase the methadone as appropriate. Good luck getting pain control and the patients taking those very, very high doses. Yeah, it's a challenge. Is there anything else you want to add to all the surgeons listening? Yes. One thing I would like to share with the surgeons is when you are transitioning somebody postoperatively, take a look at what the opioid they were using in the, like the last 12 hours, maybe they were on a PCA pump or whatever, and do a calculation for what you think they will need on discharge. And it may only be for a few days, but don't just default to Percocet 1Q4 and here's three days worth. So put some thought into how likely is it the patient will still have moderate to severe pain at home that will require opioid therapy and do the math. And I'm fine with you saying, look, you're going to need X amount of oxycodone per day for the first day or two, and you can taper down very quickly, but don't just default to a blanket statement, put some thought into it. That would be great. And don't forget the bowels. Uh, thank you, Lynn, so much. That's awesome. Um, I, I so appreciate your time. You're just... I would love to download your brain. <laughs> That's a dark place. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. You're most welcome. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes. To learn more about the Surgical Palliative Care community, follow us on Twitter at SurgePalCare. If you'd like to get more involved with the Surgical Palliative Care social media team, please reach out on Twitter or via email at surgicalpalliativecare at gmail.com. Lastly, take good care of yourselves and take good care of each other.